Lord, I pray that you would be with me and your spirit would speak through me as I teach your word. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to each person here as they hear your word being spoken. I pray that you would bless this all in the name of Christ, our Lord and King. Amen. Well, no matter your age, no matter anyone's age, very few people ever want to tend to think about their own death. I mean, any takers on that? Anyone like doing that? Probably not. Now, some of you are probably trying to figure out what you're going to do when you graduate. Others of you are trying to debate career changes, and some are praying to start a family, and some of you are entering retirement. And then there are some of you who have gone through all of those phases in life, and you may be asking the question, well, how do I finish strong? How do I use the time that God has given me to honor God with every last moment that I have. And that's really what we're going to be focusing on today. However, that's not just about those of you who may think that your time here on earth is short. Because the fact is, it's short for all of us. Not a single person here knows how much time they have left. In fact, I think a few of the things that came to attention of our church family this week have really demonstrated and punctuated the fragility of life. You know, we're so caught up with everything that is immediately going on around us, our, our careers, all the distractions that we have, that we rarely consider the account that we would give of what we've done with our time when our time is up. That being said, few people are ever more honest with themselves and what they've done with their time when they are face-to-face with their own mortality. In fact, Winston Churchill on his deathbed said, you know, I'm just bored with it all. That's actually a real quote. Leonardo da Vinci said on his deathbed, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. I mean, I don't know. I thought the Mona Lisa was pretty good, but that's what he said about himself. But here where we get to in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8, through we have Paul's final statement on his life. And these are words that all of us should be able to aspire to say. So turn there with me if you haven't already. And you'll notice that Paul's statement strikes a much different tone than those other great figures of history that I already quoted. In fact, Paul's here is undeniably triumphant. It's confident. And for those of you who have been here as we've walked through first and especially Second Timothy who know the context that we're in, you may be asking, how can that be? Why is that? I mean, after all, where are we here? What is the context? When are we? Well, again, the year is 67 AD. There's a madman on the throne of the empire of Rome. His name is Nero. Now, Nero is as evil as he is crazy, and he's as crazy as he is evil. And Satan has used Nero to take out the foremost chess piece in the battle for lost souls, that being the foremost of all gospel preachers and apostles, the Apostle Paul himself. Now, Paul, as he writes this to his younger colleague, his child in the faith, Timothy, Paul sits in a cold, dark, bleak dungeon in Rome, in a pit in the ground where he awaits execution. But even Paul understood that even his own death was in God's sovereign hands. 
So while we see these three verses, I know that that's not a lot. Usually we cover a little bit more, but we're going to look at, to see how Paul makes this final statement on his life. And Paul is first going to look to the present, what's immediately before him, what he's facing. Then he's going to look to the past, to his entire life since he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then, most gloriously, he looks to the future. So verse 6 reads, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now in those first two words there, for I, we see a a link to the statement that Paul has just charged Timothy. We covered it last week. Verse 5. Verse 5 starts out with a but you. And then we see in verse 6, a for I. But you, Timothy, be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I, Paul, am going away. I have fulfilled my ministry. Now as we've already discussed, Paul has poured into Timothy. He's discipled Timothy. Timothy has accompanied Paul on one of his missionary journeys and God has raised Timothy up to carry on that legacy of what Paul had planted in Ephesus. Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus. For Paul is already being poured out as a drink offering. I hear Paul is using a rather dark but beautiful metaphor for what awaited him. You see, Paul as a Roman citizen could not legally be crucified as a form of execution, as we believe that Peter was and other martyrs of the faith. Of course, our Lord, but no, Paul as a Roman citizen, his method of execution would be beheading. So Paul doesn't refer to his execution as a moment of defeat. He doesn't refer to it as an injustice. He doesn't even make a cynical remark about the evil Roman Empire. No, Paul himself wrote the Romans that our entire lives we are living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's our act of worship. And he sees his looming martyrdom even as one final act of worship that he can give his Savior in this life. So Paul uses imagery from the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system where a drink offering would be poured out to the Lord as a fragrant aroma unto the Lord. Paul, certain of his fate, he says, the time of my departure has come. Now Paul isn't talking about the exact moment. He's not finishing up his letter to Timothy saying, I hear their footsteps, this is it. No, Paul is talking about the general season. He knows his life is coming to a close. In fact, Paul's going to close this letter of what we'll cover next week, and he's going to ask Timothy for some items, his cloak, his parchment. So he may think that he has some matter of days, but he knows it's only a matter of time. It's clear, despite all of the jailings and execution attempts and persecutions and jams that God has miraculously spared Paul from all the way in his ministry leading up to this point, Paul is soberly knowing that his assignment on earth is drawing to a close. And in fact, if you can imagine as he's down in that pit, every single time he hears footsteps approaching his cell, he wouldn't know if it was someone dropping his daily rations or a Roman soldier who had just sharpened his sword to take Paul to his place of execution. So with that grim reality in mind, Paul, under instruction of the Holy Spirit, he looks to the past He looks to the past three roughly decades since God performed a profound miracle in his life. 
A miracle more earth-shaking and earth-shattering than when God shook the walls of that Philippian jail to free Paul from that jail some 17 years earlier. A miracle where God intervened through space and time and forever changed the course of Paul's life and thereby forever transformed the course of human history. And that is the miracle of Paul's salvation. Ever since God had redeemed the terrorist, the legalist, the vile, the hateful, the persecuting, the Christ-hating Saul of Tarsus, God had set him apart to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and a herald of the Gospel. And Paul can confidently state in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And when we read that, knowing some of the things that Paul has been through in his life, we may grant him the ability to gloat a little bit. To take a victory lap. You know, to say, alright, I'm finally here and I'm going to stand up and pump my fist and say that I've made it just like someone who collapses on the court in Game 7 of the finals and is victorious. But that's not what this passage is ultimately about. It's not ultimately about Paul saying, woohoo, here I am, I've made it. No, it wasn't written for that. It was written for Timothy. It was written for all of us. Paul didn't write this so that we would mourn him. And he didn't even write it so that we would celebrate him. Paul wrote this to encourage and to strengthen us. Again, that conjunction that we begin verse 6 with, the four I and being poured out. The time of my departure has come. It connects directly to the previous verse. Verse 5, As for you, but you, Timothy, be sober-minded, be alert, be watchful, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I have reached the finish line in martyrdom. I have kept the faith. I fought the good fight. The Lord will enable and strengthen you to be able to do the same. So really, when we look at this, we've talked so much about discipleship, about Paul's discipleship for Timothy, about Paul's instructions for Timothy to be a disciple who makes disciples, who can make disciples and teach others, and how that's what we're called to be in this church. And really, when we look at the statement, this is really the final piece of Paul's discipleship of Timothy. It's the capstone. Paul is is leading by example. He's modeling faithfulness. He's modeling all the things that he's commanded and asked Timothy to do all the way up until the very end when Paul would give his life on the battlefield for the Lord. He's saying, endure suffering as I have all the way to the end. And we know Paul had endured every imaginable form of suffering and Paul had the battle scars from the beatings and the stoning attempts and Paul was about to lay down his life on the battlefield but as for you Timothy as for you believer fulfill your ministry just as I Paul have already done so we break that down into these three sections and we know that in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12 Paul commands Timothy fight the good fight of the faith. And here Paul can summarize his entire life since he got saved as a model he has set for Timothy and say, I have fought the good fight. I fought the good fight. Now, a life in Christ 
you all know, is a life of unparalleled joy. It's a life of all-surpassing peace. It's a life of supreme purpose, of unimaginable hope, and of course, profound love. But, in all of that, it is a relentless spiritual struggle. You know, I know a lot of us like to see ourselves as fighters. In fact, one of our chief fighters here in this church and his two kids are on a plane to Israel right now, Kevin Tuttle, so i got to give a shout out to him. But a lot of us like to see ourselves as fighters, and I love the church that God is raising up right here at Grace of people who are excited about standing for truth and standing on the Word of God. Amen? I'm so excited about that. And it's very easy to look out in our society in times like these to see the moral rot and decay of our society, to see the good that is being called evil and the evil that's being called good, to see what's going on in the political arena, to see what our culture is pushing and the evil of our day, and we can see that we are in a battle. Can we not? Everything physical and media and political, all of that is ultimately a spiritual battle. And I am sick and tired of the church always being in a default formation of retreat. Since everything ultimately is spiritual and it's under the domain of our supreme holy creator of the universe, we as a church must be willing and able to fight that fight and stand on truth. But, how many of us forget that the fight really begins within How many of us are so caught up with the things of the world that disgust us out there that we neglect the things that should disgust us because they disgust God in here? Satan is out to destroy you. Each and every one of you who know Jesus as your Savior. If Jesus is your Lord, Satan is out to destroy you. He is at work. He's plotting against you with temptations of your flesh. He's at work to frustrate you, to discourage you, to cause you to lose your focus, to get you off course. He's trying to get you to stumble and ultimately for you to bring reproach on the name of your King, Jesus Christ. In fact, some of the loudest voices in the culture war, some of the seemingly most brazen men who will fight spiritual or moral battles of our day are ones who have utterly failed that first spiritual fight. And since they have, they completely disqualified themselves. They failed that fight for Christ's complete reign within their own hearts, over their own actions. And because they have, they've disqualified themselves. There are a few things that Satan wants more than for us to forget that the battle wages within our flesh the battle wages within our own hearts. He wants us to let up on that fight, for us to be overtaken by our idols and our distractions, and ultimately for us to disqualify ourselves and bring reproach on the name of Christ our King. So I really think that that's the fight that Paul is talking about here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, written to the church in Ephesus where Timothy is now pastoring and overseeing. Paul writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now we get caught up in everything and everyone who angers us in these evil times. And there are many things that should elicit those feelings from us. But sometimes we forget that Satan is the evil one behind the evil. He's ultimately the one behind the people pushing for population control, for abortion on demand, for the destruction of the nuclear family, for the lies being fed to our children, for the violence and the vice in our society, and for human trafficking, for genocide. That is Satan's domain right there. The Nero's of Paul's day and the Nero's of our day are certainly evil and we should be able to call them out as such, yet they are ultimately doing the evil will of their spiritual father, the evil one himself. And that same evil one wants to personally destroy you and destroy your faith. He wants sin and rebellion to reign in the throne of your heart where Christ lays claim to rule. But God's got you. As we read earlier, the Lord knows those who are His. But this is the good fight. This is the spiritual fight. It's a struggle with the old us that wants to sin in a way that's not befitting of the new us. It's a struggle to daily deny ourselves and carry our cross and pursue Christ. And I ask, are you awake to this fight? Are you daily fighting, tearing down those idols in your heart so that Christ reigns over all of you? Your thoughts your attitudes, your actions, your purpose, your aim in life. I pray that God will continue to raise up a church of fighters here who will fight the good fight, who will boldly stand on truth, who will stand on the firm foundation of the Word, but above all, a church of saints who daily battle for Christ to have total reign in each and every one of us. Next, Paul declares, I have finished the race. And we know that Paul likes athletic metaphors quite a bit, and especially ones about a race. In fact, we had a whole adult Sunday school where we really went through all the athletic imagery that Paul uses. In fact, ten years prior, Paul, in the book of Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of this very church in Ephesus that Timothy now is overseeing and pastoring. And Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from my Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, that I may finish my course. And now Paul here, as he is winding down that last stretch, he is declaring that he has, in fact, finished that course. I have finished the race. And when we think of uh, our lives in Christ, often can seem like a sprint. You know, when you get saved and that starting gun goes off and all of a sudden you realize that you are in a race, everything about your aim in life changes. And I got to say, there are a few things more exciting and encouraging to see people who come to Christ and just sprint right out of the gate. And we see amazing fruit right away in spiritual growth and maturity that all of us can witness and, and be encouraged by. But our lives in Christ also can sometimes seem like an obstacle course. Have you guys ever seen the steeplechase event at a track and field event? You know, they got to 
jump all over these hurdles. They even got to jump over like a pond of water. It's kind of nuts. And our lives in Christ can seem like that. And sometimes, in fact, we trip. But God brings those brothers and sisters in our life. And this is why the church community is so important to pick us up, to encourage us, to exhort us so that we can continue. And then, of course, our Christian life can seem like a marathon. It requires endurance. It requires pain tolerance. It requires the ability to press through through everything around us or even sometimes within us that is telling us to give up. And we know that in Hebrews 12.1, we see that there are two things that can hinder us in our race. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, obviously, excess weight can impede any runner. And no, this isn't talking about the freshman 15 or the holidays or anything like that. This is talking about the pride of life, the distractions of this world, the things that even on the outset don't seem necessarily all that bad, but the things that siphon our focus and our energy away from Christ. And then, of course, sin. But the only solution to lay aside those distractions and sin is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our race, in order to run well, in order to finish well, requires pursuit of Christ in everything we do. It requires us to daily ask, Lord, am I pursuing You? Am I pursuing You with my finances, with my relationship, with the way I treat my spouse, with the way I parent my children, with everything that I am, with all of my time, my resources, and my abilities? Am I running my race toward You? But then Paul declares, I have kept the faith. Paul finished his previous letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy saying, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And now Paul is saying that he has done the same. He has kept the faith. He's upheld sound doctrine. He's refuted false doctrine. He's rebuked. He's exhorted, he's taught, he's discipled, he's planted, he's watered, he's done everything that the Lord had called him to do, and he has held fast in all of it, in every persecution, in full confidence to the promises of God. Despite every trial, every beating, every attack, even every betrayal, despite everything that the enemy could throw in his way and scheme to provoke Paul to let go and to give up, Paul has kept the faith. And because Paul has fought the good fight and he has finished the race and he has kept the faith, he looks forward to the glorious future that awaits him. In verse 8 we read, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The best is yet to come. Paul has confidence even in death because he has absolute confidence in what awaits him in Christ. Paul isn't focused on the chains around him. He's focused on the crown. The word for crown here refers to that wreath that would be given for an athlete or a fighter that emerges victorious from the fight or from the race. It would be placed on their heads and it's for one who completes, one who finishes, one who is victorious. 
But this crown that we're talking about here is the crown of righteousness. The crown of the very righteousness of Christ. See, Paul is a believer who endured to the end will receive eternally that crown of the very righteousness of his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. James refers to that crown as the crown of life. Peter refers to it as the unfading crown of glory. And what this is talking about is eternal life. Eternal righteousness. Eternal joy and peace in the presence of our glorious Savior. Just think about that for a moment. The emotions that Paul must be swelling in. To have hardly any light trickling into his cell. He's probably malnourished. He's, he's cold as winter is approaching. He's got shackles and chains around him. He's probably jeered and mocked by the Roman soldiers where he's kept. But Paul's shackles will be exchanged for a crown. Paul will pass from a dark dungeon into the luminous, radiant expanse of Christ's resplendent glory. And we know that the moment that we place our faith in Christ as our Savior and Lord, that His righteousness is placed upon us. That marvelous transaction we talk about that occurred at the cross. Our sins and our debt is placed upon Him. His righteousness is placed upon us. Quite a marvelous transaction. But, While we're still here in this life, we still live in the flesh. We still battle sin. Our sin still can plague us. And that's the battle we talked about, remember? Fighting the good fight. We were asleep to that battle before, but when we get saved, we wake up and we realize, whoa, I'm on a battlefield. So we're battling that sin. But in completion of that battle, His righteousness will be perfected in us and we will receive that crown of righteousness. Now Paul speaks of receiving this crown on that day. Now that day that Paul's referring to isn't that day that the Romans finally say, all right, here it is, we're taking you to your place of execution. No, he's talking about the day that the Lord returns. That day that all of us await. When the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise, and we receive our eternal, glorified, resurrected bodies. That glorious day. And what's more, this promise right here, Paul includes, this just isn't, this isn't just for Him. It's for all who have loved Christ's appearing. Now what does that mean to love Christ's appearing? Well, Just think about it. A genuine believer desires nothing more than the return of our Lord. We want to see Him face to face. There's nothing on this earth that can hold us down to the things of this world that we could possibly desire more than Christ's return. There are plenty of things that this world can offer or distract us with or promise us, but if you genuinely belong to Christ, as Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You guys all know that I worked for the state of Wyoming for some six odd years before the Lord. uh, And Pastor Paul called me into ministry. And... I got to see a lot of retirement speeches. But 
any of you who know anything about government work knows that there's not a whole lot of incentives for people to really be diligent with their time when they're on the clock. They just kind of show up and they can do a lot of work or they can do none and they'll still get the same paycheck. And so I would see a lot of retirement speeches and I think of some of my coworkers who will be retiring and a lot of them would honestly say, if they were honest in a retirement speech, well, I clocked in and today I clocked out and that's it. Sadly, though, I think a similar thing could be said about many professing Christians in an age of easy believism, in an era of little persecution in this country. I think if many professing Christians in America today were to soberly, introspectively examine their lives, and I ask you all to do the same, and what you've done with your time and why, many Christians would have a statement that reads a lot differently than what we read Paul just say in verse 7 here. Instead of, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. I think a lot of professing Christians might honestly say, look, I've shown up to church for an hour on Sunday when I could make it. I've given my 10% in the offering plate. I've never considered doing anything too crazy, but you know, looking back at my life, I honestly could have done so much more for my king with what he gifted me to do. Essentially, the I've clocked in and one day I'll clock out. But understand, not a single person here, young or old, knows when that day will come. Only the Lord knows. But for all of us, this life is a vapor. It's so much more brief than we ever truly realize. Yet what we do in the time that God has given us echoes across eternity. Look, we weren't called to be apostles. We aren't called to the exact office and the exact course in life or the exact uh, you know, race that Paul ran. But God has reached down and saved you by the blood of Christ. He's gifted you supernaturally. And He has placed you in that good fight. He has placed you in that course to run. He has given you a faith to keep until the end for His glory and His coming kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You for Your Word and the life and ministry and example of the Apostle Paul. Lord, I just pray that Your Spirit would speak to each and every one of us, that we would look into our lives honestly at the time that we spend the ways in which You've gifted us upon salvation and what resources You've given us, what relationships You've placed in our lives. And Lord, that we would all ask ourselves, are we fighting that good fight of the faith? Are we running that course in the way that You've directed us to run? Lord, are we keeping that faith and awaiting Your return, loving Your appearing on that day? Lord, I pray that every person here, that You would strengthen, enable them, convict them to do what You've given them to do in the time that You've given them today, tomorrow, this week, this year, for the rest of their lives until You return or call us home. We ask this all in the name of Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.